Well, good morning, Oceanside Sanctuary. Welcome again to Sunday morning at uh, the Oceanside Sanctuary online on Facebook and YouTube. We are excited, as always, to gather with you, even though we are doing this across our computer screens and our tablet screens. Uh, It's good to be uh, here in this space, just engaging with each other. And so we ask today, as always, that you would just pop into the comments on Facebook or YouTube and share a hello or uh, just an encouraging word for each other so that we can be fellowshipping even in this space. Today, we're going to continue with our Why Church series. We're going to take a look at a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to talk about tradition and the role of tradition in church and why people might choose to be a part of a church, even though tradition often seems like one of those things about church that we don't like or that maybe even tends to drive people away. But before we jump into that, uh, let's just start with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to be with us as we open this passage together. God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather here and to connect with each other online We pray that as we read through this passage from 1 Corinthians, that you would speak to us, that you would use these words to inspire us and ignite a new imagination in us for what's possible, and that you would teach us how to be the kind of people who come together for the purpose of birthing something new by your Spirit in the world that's good and right and true for our communities, for our families and for our world as a whole. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, recently I was looking uh, at some of the news articles about what's going on in the world, and of course 2020 has been one of those years uh, that has just seen so much uprising across the country for so many reasons. And one of those reasons, of course, is just the increased awareness of how racism has such a powerful ongoing impact in our society. And here at the Oceanside Sanctuary, we have gotten involved in a number of anti-racism efforts. Many of you know that. But one of the things that we see happening in our world that's actually been going on for several years now is that as communities of color are rising up and pointing out the different ways that racism is continuing to pervade our society, Uh, One of the expressions of that, one of the ways that sort of rises to the surface is around the controversy related to statues and monuments to people from prior to the Civil War, back when uh, the antebellum South in the United States still practiced slavery. And so one of those controversies, of course, is that all over the country, there are still statues and monuments to people from that time who are celebrating people who were slave owners or who fought in the Confederacy um, during the Civil War. And that's a, a real point of hurt and contention for communities of color today because those monuments, those statues, actually represent uh, an embrace of slavery and an overt embrace of racism. And so these little, these little fights have cropped up all over the country over the past several years. And one example of that is in 2018, the city of Memphis decided that they wanted to tear down and get rid of a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Nathan Bedford Forrest, some of you might know if you're history buffs, was actually a Confederate general and he was a slave owner in the South and of course is uh, sort of celebrated in the South for some of his achievements and celebrated for being a person of 
of strength and character, character and success. Uh, but of course, in addition to whatever good qualities Nathan Bedford Forrest had, he also was somebody who owned slaves and profited off of slavery and fought for the Confederacy and killed fellow Americans in order to preserve slavery as an institution in the South. And so, of course, this controversy has erupted around statues like the statue dedicated to Nathan Bedford Forrest. And in 2018, the city of Memphis decided they wanted to tear that statue down because uh, they felt that they no longer wanted to embrace um, public monuments to people who uh, embrace slavery and endorse slavery. And of course, they found out that the city of Tennessee actually had a law in the books that explicit, explicitly forbade these uh, Civil War era or pre-Civil War era uh, 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 landmarks or, or monuments to people from that time. And so there was this sort of epic battle between the city of Memphis and the state of Tennessee that happened in 2018 and involved a lot of legal wrangling and uh, a lot of controversy and stirred up a lot of frustration. Now, the controversy at the heart of this always seems to boil down to a group of people who say that these monuments represent something bad, something evil even, the practice of slavery as an institution, versus another group of people who say that these monuments don't necessarily celebrate slavery per se, they simply celebrate a memory of tradition or a memory of a particular culture. And so that argument seems to hinge on how it is that we remember our past without honoring those things in the past that aren't good. And I, I think this sort of controversy actually is a really helpful way for us to think about our subject today, which has to do with how we practice traditions in the church. Because traditions, of course, are essentially practices of past events or practices of past memories. And those past events and past memories sometimes can stir up differences of opinion about what's good and what's not good and what's right and what isn't right. So today what I wanna do is take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and just read that together with you because I think this uh, passage from 1 Corinthians 11 gives us a really helpful way for understanding how we can engage with the past through our traditional practices in a way that's still helpful for us uh, to propel us towards the future and the birth of new and good things as a church. So if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, you'll see there in verse 23, that's where we're going to pick it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, this is where uh, the Apostle Paul, who's writing to the Christians in Corinth, he is giving to them the institution of the Lord's Supper or communion, which is, of course, something that we practice every time we gather as a church at the Oceanside Sanctuary. This is a tradition that we hold really dear. And so I want to read through this and then point out a couple of things that I think are important for us to notice. Starting in verse 23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this is a very familiar passage and should be very familiar to any of you who are a part of our church, because like I said a moment ago, one of our central practices at the Oceanside Sanctuary is that we celebrate communion every time we gather. And there's good reason for that, because we see the table of communion as the central act of our worship together. That more than the preaching, more than the music, more than prayers, or even reading of scripture, that this act of coming together around a table is our way of declaring that what joins us together is this shared value, this shared followership of the person who is, is represented by the bread and by the juice of the communion table. And so this is something we read often as a church, and it's something that we practice every single time we gather. So it should, of course, be very familiar to you. You also know that this practice of communion is really Jesus's way of taking an older practice in the Jewish tradition of a Seder supper. So Jesus is gathering with his disciples, and what he's doing is he's sharing with them the Seder supper, where what they're commemorating, what they're remembering is the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt. And in fact, that Seder Supper is the thing that Jews practice even to this day, every single year at the Seder, in order to remember that a central event in the life of their uh, faith as people, the life of their culture, was this deliverance from slavery. And so, a central understanding of the Jewish faith is that God is for their deliverance. And that practice of sharing the Seder Supper every year is their way of commemorating that event. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's taking this very old tradition and he is sort of rebirthing it, recreating it in a new way to say that his body and his blood now take the place of the body and the blood of the lamb from Egypt, that there is a deliverance, a new kind of liberation that's happening for the people who are followers of Christ. Now, there are a couple things that I, I want to point out to you that I think are really important for understanding what Jesus is actually doing in this moment. So the first thing I want you to notice, and it's, it's not something that you see explicitly in this passage, it's something that we know because of what we know about Jesus and his followers, and that is this, that the people that Jesus has gathered with at this Seder Supper, that last supper that Jesus has with his disciples before he is arrested and crucified, all the people that Jesus has gathered are an incredibly diverse group of people. And so you know this from our readings of the Gospels, that in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, that Jesus goes out into the countryside and he calls all of this these sort of odd cast of characters to be his followers. He calls fishermen away from their nets, away from their family businesses. He, he calls tax collectors to leave behind their, their sort of treasonous, traitorous vocation against the, the people of God. He calls them to repent and to follow him in his new kingdom instead. We also know that Jesus doesn't just call men, that he calls women to follow him, that Jesus's followers included women who were treated just like the men as disciples in that following, that they were afforded great respect and that they sat at his feet as full learners, which would have been revolutionary in Jesus's time for a rabbi to treat women with such respect. We also know, of course, that Jesus called really conspicuous sinners into his 
group of followers, people who would have been shunned and excluded from the community of the faithful. And so the first thing I think that's really important for us to notice about Jesus when he has this traditional Seder supper with his followers is that the group of people that he's having this traditional supper with are a really diverse, pluralistic group of people. They're all Jewish, so they're not diverse ethnically, but they're diverse socioeconomically. Uh, They're diverse in terms of their social status or their class in their community. They're diverse in terms of their gender. It's a It's a really odd collection of people for Jesus' time and place. And so he's celebrating this tradition with a really unusual cast of characters. The second thing that I think that's important for us to notice here is that Jesus doesn't just celebrate this Seder Supper with them. He doesn't just remember a past event, although certainly they're doing that. As they're gathered around this table, they're remembering this great story of the exodus from Egypt, Uh, They're remembering all the promises that God made to God's people. But Jesus adds something to that in terms of remembrance. And so I just want to point out to you here uh, what Jesus says in verse 24. It says, And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, This body, or this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he does the same thing with the cup. He says, In verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the the second thing I think that's important for us to notice in this passage is not just that Jesus is calling them to remember this past event, this, this deliverance from Egypt that all of the Jews identify with. He's actually instituting a new remembrance. He's saying that there is new depth to these incredibly rich symbols of of wine and bread. He's saying that this wine doesn't just represent the blood of the lamb that was slaughtered in Egypt, that the bread doesn't just uh, symbolize the body and the blood of the lamb that was slaughtered in Egypt, but these elements, this bread and this wine, represent his body, represent his blood, that he's saying is shed not just for the deliverance of the people of Israel, but shed for the deliverance of a new community of people, specifically this new, diverse, ragtag, oddball group of people that he has called. In other words, Jesus institutes a remembrance of a whole new event. And I think that's really important for us to keep in mind. We're going to Touch on that a little bit more in just a minute. The third thing, though, that I think I want you to notice in this passage that I think is really important is that a new kind of action is created by this remembrance with this particular group of people. So Jesus isn't just calling them to remember this this moment from the past. By asking them to remember this new moment in the present, He is actually creating a new community of people. And we see that that's true because, of course, we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And 1 Corinthians was a letter written many years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But all these years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus... Here is this new community of followers of Christ who live in an entirely different country, an entirely different culture, who have all gathered around this historic person of Christ and are all gathering around this event where Jesus takes an old tradition 
and he gives it a new birth. He gives it new life. And here is Paul instructing this new group of people to remember this old tradition in a brand new way. And so there is this really powerful new act of creation that happens in this moment when Jesus practices this old tradition. Now, these three things that I've asked you to notice in this passage, that there's a diverse group of followers who have gathered around the remembrance of an old tradition and how their remembrance has created actually the birth of a new thing. These three points actually correspond to something that the 20th century philosopher Hannah Arendt observes in her theory of how new actions and new changes are birthed into the world. Some of you might know that Hannah Arendt was a Jewish philosopher who was from Germany. And one of the things that she's really known for is being somebody who, who wrote and thought and spoke a lot on what it means for humans to find new acts of liberation in their lives, new moments of freedom that create new possibilities in the world. And of course, because of that, her fixation on this idea of creating new movements, new possibilities for good new things in the world, put her squarely at odds with her time and place, which of course was Nazi Germany in the middle of the 20th century. And so Hannah Arendt, not only being a Jewish philosopher, but being a philosopher who spoke about liberation and freedom, really put her at odds with the emergence of fascism in Nazi Germany. And so twice, Hannah Arendt had to flee the Nazis. The first time, she was expelled from Germany and had to run from the Nazis in Germany, where she went to France and found a new home in Paris, France. But then many years later, when the Nazis invaded France, she had to flee from the Nazis a second time. And then she ended up in the United States, where she eventually became a citizen of the United States and wrote a lot of her most influential works here in the U.S. So she's really known for being somebody who's sort of a uh, a fighter of fascism in general and of Nazi fascism in particular. And one of the things that she wrote about that I think is really interesting as we compare it to this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is she wrote all about how new movements for liberation and new possibilities in our world come about. And there are three things that she said were necessary ingredients for any genuinely new creative act in the world to happen. And the first thing that she said needed uh, to happen, the first ingredient that she said was needed was a pluralistic community. That in order for any new, good, creative action to take place in the world, that we needed a group of people who were different from each other. Now, one of the things that tends to create totalitarianism or fascism or oppression in the world is when you have a group of people who are all the same. They all think the same, believe the same, act the same, speak the same. That that kind of homogeneity tends to create oppression in the world. And so when you gather a group of people who are different from each other, they come from different backgrounds, they maybe have different beliefs, they've maybe had very different experiences in their lives, that that kind of plurality, that kind of deep diversity in a group of people tends to foster the creation of something new because they have different perspectives to share. 
That's something, of course, that we talk a lot about here at the Oceanside Sanctuary, how it's really important that we become a community of people who are radically inclusive of people who have different perspectives and different experiences in life. And this is why. Because in order for us to be a healthy community, we need that sort of plurality of people. And, and of course, underneath that is the recognition also that we just really need other people. That I alone can't solve the problems in the world that concern me most, that I really need you, that I really need your perspectives, and that we really need to come together in order to produce anything meaningful and good. Uh, one of Hannah Arendt's quotes that I really love uh, uh, a great deal is uh, her talking about this need that we have for each other in order to accomplish uh, what is good and right in the world. And what she says is this. Uh, she says, action as distinguished from fabrication, is never possible in isolation. To be isolated is to be deprived of the capacity to act. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's not true. I, I can do all kinds of things by myself, right? I'm probably going to spend this weekend, for example, cleaning my garage, mostly by myself, sorting tools, you know, mop, uh, uh, sweeping the floor, putting things up on shelves, that sort of thing. But that's not the sort of action that Hannah Arendt has in mind. She's not talking about labor. She's not talking about chores. She's not talking about tasks. When Hannah Arendt talks about action, that's a very technical word for her in her philosophy. Action for her means the creation of something genuinely new in our world that creates new possibilities for freedom and for liberation. And she says, in order for that to happen, in order for us to create genuinely new possibilities for freedom and liberation, that we desperately need other people. We can't do that on our own. And she said that that needs to be a plurality of people. There needs to be diversity built into that group of people. Now, the second thing that Hannah Arendt said that we needed in order to, to have real action in the world was stories of remembrance. And this is something that's really unique to Hannah Arendt's philosophy. She says that, you know, this big philosophical problem that's sometimes referred to as the philosophical moment, right? There's this sort of controversy in some streams of philosophy that wrestle with how it is that we actually act in any given situation for our own good or for the good of other people. Hannah Arendt comes along in that debate and she says, one of the ways that we are empowered to act in any given moment is by telling stories of past moments when action was taken for good and for the liberation and the freedom of other people. In other words, Hannah Arendt says one of the ways that we are able to access the sort of power that we need in order to do something genuinely new and good is by remembering those past moments when something genuinely good occurred. So for her, she says that occurs when we tell stories of the past that infuse us with meaning that we can then take and use for the future. This is exactly what Jesus is doing at the Last Supper. He's gathering with a diverse group of people, and he is tapping into the ancient stories of the Jewish faith, ancient stories that connect them to the new and creative and liberating acts of God in their past. 
And Jesus takes that story from the past, that story of the Seder, that story that tells of how God has delivered God's people from bondage into freedom. And Jesus uses that story of remembrance to create an atmosphere where something new can be birthed. And that's the third thing that Hannah Arendt says that we need in order to create new possibilities for liberation. That third thing is a space of appearing. She calls this a space in the midst of a community of people who are telling these stories from the past, who are enacting these past traditions. Arendt says that when we do that, a space is created where something new is born. And that is, I think, exactly what Jesus does in his entire ministry. Jesus spends his entire ministry connecting with a diverse group of people, calling the oddballs and the outcasts to follow him, and then he connects them to the stories of their past that then inspire them and empower them by the Spirit of God to create a space of appearing where something good and new and genuinely liberating can be born. Now, what's exciting to me about this is that it means that in order for any group of people to genuinely create something good and new in the world, we desperately need those old stories and traditions. That those old stories and traditions that we often think of as you know, sometimes being like a ball and chain around our neck that keep us from progressing, keep us from doing something good, keep us from inventing something new. Those old stories and traditions, on the contrary, actually become one of the most powerful sources of energy and power and inspiration for us to do something genuinely new and creative and liberating. And we don't tend to think of tradition in that way. We don't tend to think of tradition as something that empowers us for the future. We tend to think of tradition as something that sort of locks us in the past. And the reason for that, of course, is sometimes church at its worst does exactly that. We take those old stories, we take those old traditions, and we use them to insist that nothing can change. We, we use those old stories and those old traditions kind of like the South in the United States uses old monuments to lift up people whose beliefs and practices and actions in the past were actually harmful and actually oppressive. In other words, our traditions and our ancient stories can just as easily become oppressive as they can become liberated. And so the trick then for us in the church is to learn how to not turn our traditions and our old stories into monuments that celebrate the wrong thing, but to rather take those traditions and those stories and to tell them as honestly and openly and truly as we can, to not turn them into propaganda like a statue to a Confederate general but rather to turn them into genuinely inspiring and instructive and empowering stories of liberation. And one of the primary ways we do that is by telling those stories in all of their stark honesty. When we tell the story, for example, of Abram and Isaac and Sarah in this church, we, we try very hard not to gloss over the difficult things about those stories. 
Last month when we talked about uh, Hagar and Hagar's son and how they were expelled from the family of Abram and Sarah because Sarah was jealous of Hagar and jealous of her son, we don't excuse that behavior. We don't say that that was good. We admit that those old biblical stories, those old biblical traditions, oftentimes contain actions and words and speech that are genuinely bad. In other words, we don't gloss over those traditions and turn them into propaganda. We embrace the hard truth of those traditions and use them to compel us and propel us forward so that we can birth something new. I think when church is at its best, it's doing exactly that. We're taking the whole Bible and we're telling these stories faithfully. We're living into these stories the best way that we know how. We're gathering a diverse group of people as a community who will lean into those stories and traditions and tell those stories and traditions honestly and bravely and courageously. And when we do that, like Christ, we create a space of creativity, a space of appearing, a space of new birth, where God can use those old stories as fertile soil and fertile ground for something new to be birthed, for something new to grow. And in that way, I think tradition becomes a genuine resource to us. It becomes a, a, a place where God is actually using those traditions to create entirely new traditions that bring about good outcomes of freedom and liberation for people who are otherwise oppressed. This whole series is called Why Church? Because the big question, of course, is why in an age of disillusionment with Christianity and disillusionment with institutions of all kinds, why in a time like this would anybody choose church? And one of my answers to that question is, people will choose to be a part of church to the extent that the church learns to use its old traditions and its old stories not as a form of propaganda for oppressing people, not as a form of, of uh, propaganda to sort of enslave people, but rather as a soil for growing something genuinely new and something genuinely good. To the extent that we're able to do that as a church, I think people, a whole bunch of different kinds of very diverse people, will want to be a part of any community that is, is courageous enough and faithful enough to birth new expressions of freedom and liberation in their midst. So today in the, the comments, I just want to ask a couple of questions uh, for you to answer. Number one, how is it that you have seen old stories in church or old stories from Scripture really help you to transform your life or help you to take action for the transformation of other people's lives for good. And then second, what are some of your favorite stories for producing that kind of uh, inspiration, that kind of energy from the Spirit of God for having the courage to try something new? So if you have an opportunity, please jump in the comments on YouTube or Facebook and answer those questions. Respond to each other, encourage each other as you answer those questions together, and uh, fellowship a little bit together in those comments. Why don't we go ahead and have a, have a prayer and ask the Lord to go with us as we uh, finish our gathering today. God, we thank you for this opportunity for us to gather again online and to read your word and to be inspired by how you are calling us as a church to be the kind of community that has the courage to lean into old stories and old traditions in a way 
that births new expressions of faith in our midst. I pray that you would give us an imagination for how that's possible. I pray that as we are faithful to some of these old traditions and practices, like gathering around communion or baptizing uh, or any of those other sort of old stories and traditions that have become meaningful to us, I pray that as we do that, that you would give us a new imagination for how those stories and those traditions can bring new life and new liberation to other people in our community. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody, and thank you for uh, checking out the Oceanside Sanctuary online church here today and we would love to know that you're out there especially if you're you're new to the church and you've uh, stumbled across us here on online um, just go to our website theoceansidesanctuary.org backslash contact and that'll put you in touch with our staff and our team and the pastors and they would love to know that you're out there and love to get to know you um, here are a few announcements for you this morning that I think are going to be really helpful. The, the first one is your mayoral candidate forum is coming up on Monday, October 12th, this Monday at 6.30 p.m. We want you as a congregation and as a group to be informed about um, who our leadership can and may be here in this uh, great city of Oceanside. So that's a great chance for you to jump online 6.30 p.m. this Monday night, October 12th, and check out the mayoral candidate forum. Um, many of you participated in the uh, online listening sessions and the online congregational survey is now out there. I know Jason emailed that out um, here about a week or so ago. If you didn't get that or you need that, simply email him or pull up the link that's posted here on the screen and that will take you to the online survey. And Jason says it'll only take a few minutes. It only took me like 33 minutes. Seriously though, this is super important and we would love for you to fill that out and give some feedback to the staff on the direction and the vision of uh, the Oceanside Sanctuary. And you can do that by simply filling out that survey. The Outgrowing Immature Religion six weeks Zoom series is coming up and that starts on uh, Wednesday night for now, October the 14th from 630 to 8.30 p.m. And this is gonna be exciting. It's a great chance to explore what healthy spirituality really looks like and how that grows within us and how um, that changes us. And if we don't allow that to grow and change us, how that amplifies uh, fear and anger and violence and how that's portrayed in many other popular religion expressions. So you can find that once again on the Oceanside Sanctuary org backslash calendar portion of the website. All the announcements, they're there for you on the website, so tap into that. And then finally, before we let you go, just a reminder that the Oceanside Sanctuary is nonprofit and it survives and thrives and lives on gifts from, from us. So we would love for you to give, we would love for you to support what's going on uh, in and through this church and how it impacts this community. And you can simply go to the website and you'll find the backslash the give button. And if you have any questions about that specifically, reach out to the pastoral team and ask them how that all works and how that looks. And they would love to have that conversation with you. Great seeing everybody here online. Look forward to seeing you in person real soon. Um, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. Have a great week.